0: We're going to continue through our series through the book of Matthew this morning. We're going to talk about the sons are free. The sons are free. Before we do, let's pray together again. Father, we just thank you again for this opportunity to be here. And worship you, and so now, Lord, we come. uh, We come to study your Scripture, God, your Word, inspired by your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, we just pray that you would use it, God. Speak to our hearts, renew our minds. Help us to think your thoughts after you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. I want to share with you this quote from Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, which I highly recommend to you. But this is what uh, Dr. Keller says in, in this book. He says, When the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily not by how much you want to receive, but by how much you are willing to give of yourself to someone. How much are you willing to lose for the sake of this person? How much of your freedom are you willing to forsake? How much of your precious time, emotion, and resources are you willing to invest for this person? And for that, the marriage vow. Is not just helpful, but is even a test. In so many cases, when one person says to another, I love you, but let's not ruin it by getting married. That person really means, I don't love you enough to close off all my options. I don't love you enough to give myself to you that thoroughly. To say... I don't need a piece of paper to love you. It's basically to say my love for you has not reached the marriage level. I think that's true. In marriage, faithful marriage, faithfully kept marriage, I believe in the coming years is going to be one of the greatest witnesses. We have people committed to God and committed to one another who are who are saying, "I'm willing to keep my vows." for better or for worse, till death do us part, as long as we both shall live. Marriage in the Bible is the ultimate parable for our relationship with God. Just like marriage, our relationship with God is measured not by the freedoms we demand for self-gratification, but it is measured by the freedoms that we gladly deny out of love for other. The Bible says that for freedom Christ has set us free. Well, free from what? That's interesting that the Bible would say that because so many people view Christianity as just this enslaving religion. But the Bible says for freedom Christ has set us free. Free from what? Well, surprisingly, he has set us free from doing whatever we want. Well, how is that freedom? Because apart from Christ, all we want to do is sin. You remember that? I remember that. All I wanted to do was sin. And interestingly, I thought I was free, but actually what the Bible says is that I thought I was in control of my desires, but really my desires were in control of me. I wasn't free. I was a slave. For freedom, Christ has set us free. To do what? To do what we weren't free to do before. Deny ourselves. Deny ourselves. Anybody can do what they want. You want true freedom? Be free to deny yourself. Free to sacrifice yourself. Your desires, your wants, your plans. Free to do what we couldn't do before. Deny self out of love for God and love for others. The sons are free. The children of God are free. That's what we're going to talk about this morning from Matthew chapter 17 verses 14 through 27. If you have a Bible and you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 and following. It says, And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire And often into the water, and I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generations, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. And when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and says, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. The Word of God. may be seated. So we're going to talk about three things from our passage this morning. Number one, the sons are free from little faith. The sons are free from little faith. Number two, the sons are free to suffer for God. The sons are free to suffer for God. And number three, the sons are free to yield rights. The sons are free to yield rights. So number one here, the sons are free from little faith. All three of the synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, include this account happening right after the transfiguration. So... We talked about last time Jesus um, was transfigured before Peter James and John, and he descends from the mountain. Okay, and uh, and we talked about there how there were there were many parallels between Jesus's transfiguration on the mountain and Moses's encounter on Mount Sinai with God, and Elijah's encounter with uh, with God on Mount Sinai. Okay, and so there's this kind of this um this progression that's taking place, and obviously it's climaxing in the person of Jesus. You you had Moses and you had Elijah, but God gets to Jesus and says, it is to him you shall listen. Listen to him. Okay. So Jesus, uh, and interestingly, when Moses was on the mountain for the first time, when he came down from that mountain, he was confronted with Israel's idolatry. They had made a golden calf. We're worshiping it. Now, Jesus, when he comes down from the mountain, he's confronted with this generation's unbelief. Amen. And Mark's account gives, Mark, Mark, uh, gives a, a, an extended version of this account. And he tends to focus on the father's unbelief where he says, I believe, help my unbelief. But Matthew here wants to focus our attention on the disciples' unbelief. Jesus' disciples were unable to cast the demon out of this child. And remember that for some time now in Jesus' ministry, he had given the disciples the authority to heal the sick and to cast out demons. Okay? And so they had the ability to do that. But in this case, they were not able. And when they asked him privately or, or, or when, uh, when he says that they weren't able to heal them, Jesus said, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. This this, this language about the faithless generation, when Jesus typically, in, in Matthew, when he refers to this generation, it's typically very negatively because what we see kind of developing um, in the book of Matthew, and as we've talked about so often, is that despite Jesus as the fulfillment of all the scripture, despite Jesus's miracles, despite all that Jesus has done, by and large, that Jewish generation rejected him. They were faithless. They were unbelieving. And, and so... Uh, they and, and and even this even to a degree extended to his disciples and that's what Matthew is focusing on here that they were not able to cast out this demon either and so they asked him why couldn't we do it? And he said because of your little faith and so Jesus now so Jesus like like a, a good like a good uh, master does and like a good brother in Christ does he he pushes them a little bit sometimes we need to be pushed. Hey, you should have a little bit more faith by now. God will push us. You should have a little bit more faith by now. I love you but, you, but you should know by now what I can do. And so, just like we saw Peter earlier, who one second he's calling Jesus the Messiah, and the next second Jesus is calling him Satan. Okay, he was he's fickle. Okay? he's fickle okay why couldn't we why couldn't we cast it out? Their little faith uh, scholar D.A Carson says it's better translated poor faith or Im- impoverished faith because and the reason for that he says is that the illustration Jesus goes on to give is that even if they have faith the size of a mustard seed, well a mustard seed's pretty small so that is little faith. So, it's, it's, not, so the, it's translated little faith, but it's probably even worse than that. It's probably impoverished faith, because if they had little faith, they could move mountains, Jesus said. Yeah. Sure. Impoverished faith. So what this reminds us of is that the disciples really aren't too different from us. He loves us, but Jesus needs to push us because of our impoverished faith. And Jesus makes this lavish promise. He says, if you had faith, even the size of a mustard seed, you could move mountains. Now, how are we to interpret that? Because some people take that to mean that somehow, if we just have enough faith, we can basically have unlimited power to do anything we want to do. And it's just, it's not clear to me at all that that's what Jesus is saying. And that idea has really been abused in some very terrible ways that I'm sure you're aware of. But I mean, like, people coming to other people who are, like, sick with cancer, saying, if you just had enough faith, God would heal you. That's terrible. It's disastrous. That's not what Jesus is talking about here, okay? The context is the disciples. Why did Jesus give the disciples the ability to do this? Well, it's pretty clear because he commissioned them to do what? To go out and proclaim the gospel, so all the, all the powers that Jesus entrusted to his disciples were for what? Was to confirm that the kingdom of God was arriving in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the healings wasn't just to heal. The healings were a sign that Jesus is the Christ. That he is the king and the kingdom has come upon us. And so all these signs weren't just to make people feel better. All these signs were to say that God is doing something climactic in the world and you better get on board or you're going to get left behind. Yeah, man, man. It was the inaugural stage of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Which is why I think we see such an unusual amount of miraculous powers at work in the early church because those were the early days where God was laying the foundation of the church and and testifying of the validity of Christ, and so I think we're it's we should then expect we we should expect not to have the same levels of uh, miracles taking place in our day. Once the foundation of the church is laid, the need for that validation becomes less and less. All that to say, we shouldn't expect. It doesn't mean we shouldn't expect miracles at all. I think in certain contexts, especially where the gospel is making new inroads into unreached areas, I think we can expect to see that. Uh, I know a guy, a godly man, who can give firsthand witness and testimony, a missionary in Africa, of numerous unbelievable miracles that have taken place. Not because they did it, but because they prayed and Jesus did it. So it's not that miracles can't take place, but they're they're ultimately for proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom of God and that Christ is her king. Sorry about that, y'all. So the need for validation becomes less and less. So what does this mean for us? Well, I think most importantly what it means is this. We should have great faith and we should have great faith that jesus is going to do whatever he wants to do to build his kingdom on earth so when we think about healings we just frankly we're self-focused we just want to be better but that's not god's going to make us better one day but that's not the point right now the point is is to tell the world that jesus christ is lord And so what we should believe then is this, is that God will spare no expense. He will spare no power to make sure that his name is exalted on this earth. And so if we start praying for God's power, not to just make us feel better, but start praying for God's power so that people will get saved and lives will be transformed and people will bow the knee to King Jesus and acknowledge Him as Lord, we can rest assured that Jesus is going to spare nothing to see that end accomplished. The smallest faith can move mountains. And so maybe it's a family member who just seems hardened to the gospel. Maybe it's a neighborhood and we think, what are we going to do? Maybe it's maybe it's a nation that you think is going down the drain. Jesus Christ is Lord. Yes. Yes. He's in charge. Yes. And he's going to do whatever he wants to do. And nobody's going to stop him. Right. And so when we pray, that's who we pray to. Jesus can do what... The, you see... Jesus couldn't do it. I mean, the disciples couldn't do it. And then, and then Jesus says, oh, faithless generation. But then he says this, bring them to me. That's right. Jesus can do what we can't do. Amen. Most of us are like that. Most of us are like that dad. I believe God helped my unbelief. Jesus says, bring them to me. I'll do it. I'll do it. Jesus can do what we can. And if we believe that, that means we're free. We're free from little faith. We're free to believe that God can and will do what we can't. And so that's why, that's why I've just been thinking, if we're going to see God do anything, it's going it's to happen through prayer. So, as your pastor, I'm just—I—I I, I plead with you. Let's be a praying people. Pray for this church. Pray for the members of this church. Pray for the members in your discipleship. Pray for your lost family members. Pray for this community. Pray for God to do what only He can do. And guess what? When you just—when you just start acknowledging that you can't, but God can, and you just start crying out to Him, guess what? God starts to do things. As he can. So number one, the sons are free from little faith. Number two, the sons are free to suffer for God. The sons are free to suffer from God. Verse 22 says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he'll be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So this is... a uh, this is Jesus again explaining this to them. So he, he tells them this multiple times over this time period here because remember he's he's realigning their expectations. Okay? So he has he has to he has to reemphasize what what's going to happen to him, even though they 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 can't quite grasp what is going to happen. I mean, that, with without these words, I mean how are they go they don't have the categories to comprehend a crucified Messiah. They just don't. How could, that, how could that even work? A crucified Messiah. They just can't grasp it. But Jesus tells them anyway so that when it happens, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, they will begin to put the pieces together. That he'll be delivered into the hands of men and they'll kill him and on the third day he will rise from the dead. At, at these words, the ESV says that they were greatly distressed, greatly distressed. The word means to grieve or to make sad, but it seems to include this notion of causing per, perplexity, emotional pain, and confusion. It's the same word that is used of Peter in John's gospel when uh, Jesus asked him Three times do you love me? And on that third time it says Peter was grieved because he asked him the third time, Do you love me? They're confused, they're wounded, they don't know how to emotionally process what Jesus is saying. How could the Messiah die? Remember, he's not just he's not just abstract Christ Jesus is Lord, he's their master, he's their friend. They've literally walked the dusty roads of Israel with him for three years. It's the it's talk of losing a best friend. But they have to come to understand. And eventually they will. You see, in this time frame, after Jesus' transfiguration, Jesus begins to focus his attention on Jerusalem and his the final days of his earthly ministry. He is going in anticipation of the of the Passover, where Jesus will go to fulfill all that the Passover meant. So you remember the Passover. The Passover was the climactic, salvific event within the history of the nation of Israel. God delivered them from slavery in Egypt in a single night by an act of both judgment and salvation. Judgment on Egypt on those who didn't trust in God and salvation for those who trusted in him and sl- and killed the lamb, the Passover lamb. And they took the blood of the lamb and they put it on the lentils and on the doorposts of the house. Because God said, I will send the destroyer and when I see the blood, I will pass over that house in judgment. It's not because they were better than the Egyptians. It's because of the blood. Which is why John the Baptist said that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus would go to Jerusalem to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, to be the one, to be the true Passover Lamb of what the original Passover Lamb was just a pointer, a pointer. Jesus is the true Lamb of God. And when you return from your sins and trust in Him by faith that He is Lord, that He is risen, that He's alive, that He's coming back, that all who trust in Him will be saved. When you put your trust in Jesus And it is like you're taking his blood and putting it all over your house. Because guess what? God's coming. But when he sees the blood, he will pass over you. He had to suffer. But the disciples didn't understand that. It distressed them. They had to learn, as we talked about last time, they had to learn that the way of forgiveness is the way of suffering. It has to be that way. That's how it works. Think, I mean, uh, even in an abstract sense, all forgiveness requires suffering. If somebody has sinned against you, the only way you can forgive them is you have to absorb the pain and choose not to hold it against them. That's the only way. All forgiveness requires suffering. The greatest forgiveness required the greatest suffering. And that's what Jesus did. He suffered for us. And so you see, Jesus, he was free. He was free to suffer. King of kings, Lord of lords. And yet he made himself nothing. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord I have received authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again this charge I have received from my father see Jesus was free why because he had a mission because he knew that his earthly life wasn't all that there was he was free he was free to do what to lay down his earthly life He was free. You see, most of us aren't free. When you love this life, you're not free. You can't give it up. You won't. Because how can you give up what you think is all that there is? But if you understand and know that this life isn't all that there is, then you're free to give this one up. He who loses his life will find it. Jesus lived to, to please the Father, to obey Him, to love him. And now we as followers of Jesus, we must walk in His footsteps. We, we too are children of God, and we too are free. We're free. You're free, Church. You're free to suffer for Jesus. I don't know if you've seen it or not, you're probably not, because they don't make a big deal about it, but pastors have been arrested in Canada for violating their COVID policies. You can get in an airplane with 300 other people, but you can't go to church. Are you ready? Are you free to suffer for the Lord? He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will find it. That's not overseas, folks. It's right here. We're free. We're free to suffer for Jesus. We're free from little faith. We're free to suffer for God. And finally, number three, the sons are free to yield rights. The sons are free to yield rights. It says, When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? When he said, From others... Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is a very interesting story. It's only found in the Gospel of Matthew. The two drachma tax is almost certainly the temple tax. That's described in Exodus chapter 30, verse 11. It says, The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel, each, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. So remember that um, the, the the people of Israel are are they're redeemed by God. So the the Passover was an act of redemption. They were they 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 were spared. They were purchased out of what they deserved by the Passover lamb. They were spared by God. That's this. That's the imagery. That's the symbolism. And so when they took a census then and they numbered that. Uh, from, uh, from from those days forward, okay, the, 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 the temple tax was to act as basically like a ransom. It was a reminder that every life of the nation of Israel wasn't free. It was purchased by God. And so the, the temple tax served as kind of like a, a ransom, a kind of like a reminder of the purchase that each life of Israel was purchased by God. And and the temple tax was a um, a kind of a, a, a mark of pride among the uh, the Jewish nation because all that money would go to support the um, uh, the temple. So they called it the the two drachma tax. A shekel, a shekel was worth four drachmas. So half a shekel is two drachmas. So the two two drachma tax. And so. Jesus told Peter, you'll find in the mouth of the fish a shekel, so that's four drachmas, so that he can pay for him uh, for Jesus and for himself. The question there that Jesus addresses to Peter is interesting. Peter walks in, and before Jesus knows the conversation he just had, and before Peter says a word, Jesus says to Peter, Do earthly kings tax their sons or others? And then obviously the answer is the others, right? <laughs> The, the crown prince doesn't pay taxes. And then Jesus said, well, then the sons are free. The sons are free. Do you get what Jesus is saying? The temple tax is whose tax? Whose tax? God's tax. Who's Jesus? God's son. The sons are free. Jesus doesn't have to pay taxes to the temple. He is the temple. The temple belongs to Jesus because everything that belongs to the father is his. The sons are free. Jesus is free. He doesn't have to pay the temple tax. He is the son. And the sons are free. But. He tells Peter. To pay it. Jesus just wanted to make a point. But he still tells Peter to pay it. Why? He says. So to not give offense to them. You see, the jews they didn't understand who Jesus was. And of course, it was commanded by Moses. It was commanded in the law. And so they, they wouldn't understand. They wouldn't understand. They, don't, they didn't believe him, and they wouldn't understand why he would not pay the tax, even though he's free from it. And so in order not to give offense to them, he says, pay it. Pay the tax. Not because he's obligated to, but so as not to give offense to them. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying very clearly this. He's the son. It all belongs to him. He didn't have to pay the tax. But he he was free. But he denied his freedom so as not to give unnecessary offense to others. You see, the temple was one of the old wineskins that couldn't contain the new wine of the new covenant. But as Jewish Christians, they still had the freedom to pay the tax even though they weren't obligated to. The sons are free. And the lesson from that for us is this. There are matters of general indifference. That if it's going to give offense to somebody to do or not to do it, and it's not commanded by God in Scripture one way or another, then just do it. Or not do it. Don't give unnecessary offense to people. Why? Because we're free. We're free. right? Why is this so important? Because we live in a day that tells everybody that you must demand your rights. You must demand your rights. But see, as Christians, we don't have to demand our rights. God, now I'm not talking, I mean, a, a government has the responsibility to uphold the rights of its citizens. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about in our lives and in our interpersonal relationships. Look, we, we don't have to demand our own way. We can just, we can just do what it takes to, to, so that we don't give unnecessary offense to someone and move on. Just move on. Because why? Because there's bigger fish to fry. Jesus could have planted a flag in the ground and said, I'm not paying that temple tax. But guess what? That would have made a big deal about something. And he didn't come come about taxes. He came to proclaim the kingdom of God. He 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 would have been making a big deal about nothing and hindering his own ministry just because he didn't want to pay a few shekels. So what does it mean? It means we're free to deny ourselves. You know? That person wronged me. I ain't going to them. They got to come to me. Let me tell you something. There's bigger fish to fry. We're free. We're free to Go the second mile. We're free to be wronged. The Bible says that. We're free to be wronged. We're free to be taken advantage of if necessary. If if it means we don't put unnecessary stumbling block between others and the kingdom of God. Deny our rights for the sake of others. We do this, why? Because that's what Jesus did for us. Let me tell you something. Jesus was in heaven, the Son of God, shining brighter than the sun. He didn't have to come down here, get in our mess, die for somebody else's sins. He didn't have to do that. But love denies self. Love denies rights. Love does what it doesn't have to do. Because that's what Jesus did for us, we can do it for others too. And as I close this morning, I just want to say, if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, He loves you. He did more than you could possibly imagine when we didn't deserve it. And if you will bow the knee to Him as Lord, He'll forgive you of all your sins, past, present, and future. And He'll put a crown on your head. And we'll reign with Him forever. Let's pray.